0: All right, we're in the book of Haggai. It's a little book that packs a big punch. It's one of the smallest books in the Old Testament, two chapters, and they record the events of only four months of time. Only four months of time, two chapters. So we're in the post-exilic minor prophets, which is a fancy way of saying the year is 520 BC. King Darius of the Persians has issued the release and the return of the Jewish people from Babylon back to their homeland, and Ezra, as Steve talked about last week, the people got back, they had a good start, they reinstituted the feasts, they built the foundation of the temple, they threw a big party, and that's where we're at in our story today. The tension of the book of Haggai, the problem and the issue, is that the people had lost sight on what was important. They started really well, and then partway through the job, they said, ah, that's good enough for now. We'll finish the rest later. Anybody ever done that? House renovations, you know? You get the room to where it's livable. You slide all the furniture back in. I just got some men in trouble this morning, I'm sure. But that's how it happens. The name Haggai means feastal one or the one of feasts. Maybe he was born on a feast. I don't know. But it speaks to the theme of the book that the people were feasting on their own self-indulgence instead of focusing on what was really important. Priorities, first things first. This is what we're going to talk about today. And I find it really ironic that on a snow day, all the people who are here prioritize getting to come and meet together with their church. And I'm talking about priorities. This might be a little bit of preaching to the choir, but God knows who's here and knows who needs to hear this message. And for those who watch later on as online as well. But priorities, how do we choose between what is good and what is best? How do we weed out distractions? How do we find what is really important and significant? What is most important in my life and how do I prioritize that? How do I keep the first things first? Here's a quote from D.L. Moody that I love. My wife pointed it out this week. Our greatest fears should not be of failure, but of succeeding at something that doesn't really matter. How many times do we get to the end of the day and we've succeeded at all the things we had to do, but we get to the end of the day and think, what did I accomplish? I was just running around, busy. I got through the task list, but at the end of the day, the important things that I should be doing are still pushed to the next day or the next week or the next calendar. The devil is an expert in distraction, isn't he? He doesn't often put a stop to what we're doing. He just kind of twists what we're doing. So we're off track. We're off target, and we focus in on the things that don't really matter and end up wasting time. Haggai is going to point out three indicators of where our priorities are, and then he's, he's going to end with where our priorities should be. Okay, So a nice little three-point sermon here on a two-chapter book. This should be good and, and straightforward. So why don't we pray before we get into the book? God, I just want to thank you so much for this day. Uh, Father, we pray for Newfoundland and for those buried in snow who have it much worse than we do. I hear that more snow is on the way for them. I pray that you'd encourage them, give safety, and be with those who uh, worked for the snow cleanup efforts. God, we think of Australia and the wildfires. God, there are so many areas in the world that are struggling with real tragedy. Father, help us not to look at today and think, woe is me. But God, we are so thankful for the blessings in our life. God, help us to keep our priorities straight. Help us to know and to grasp what is most important, what is top priority in our lives. Help us to schedule and budget and expend our energy in those areas, Father. Thank you for all who came out today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, in the sixth month, which is August, according to this calendar, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak. Joshua is such a good name, isn't it? God is my salvation. The high priest, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You ever use that excuse? It's just not the right time. I just don't have time. You know, it looks like things are lining up. There's going to be a good time, but right now is just not that time. Right? We use that excuse, don't we? The Persians release God's people back to their land. There's a fresh restart in the land after 70 years of Babylonian captivity. Assyrian, Babylonian, Medes, and Persians. Captivity of 70 years. They get back for the first time Why not now? Why would that not be the perfect time to do what they should have done in the first place and put God first and to build his temple? That's not a great time. Not a good time. Do you remember that feeling as a kid? I tried to explain this to my family a little while ago and failed really bad. So hopefully this succeeds a little better. But do you remember as a kid, let's say it's summer vacation. You're with your family. Doesn't that sound good right now, summer vacation? I mean, the story we're reading is in August, August 1st. That sounds really good right now. But picture with me. You're with your family. It's summer vacation. You show up at the theme park or the water park. Maybe it's Rainbow Valley in PEI. That's where my family always used to go. And you're standing in the line. And as a kid, I remember you could see the roller coaster going by. Whoosh. And you can see somebody go down the kamikaze at Magic Mountain, and everybody's clapping and cheering. And you can see the wave pool, and you can see all the people going up and down, and you can smell the sunscreen and the chlorine and the popcorn. And there's people walking around with cotton candy and the games they won at the carnival, and you're just so excited to get there and do it. And what do mom and dad say? we got to find the lockers. we got to go to the change room. Does anybody need to use the bathroom? We should make sure the vehicle's locked. Where are we going to put the cooler? Where are the lawn chairs that we're going to choose for the day? You finally get there, you get that all set up. Okay, does everybody know where we're going to meet if we get lost? What time lunch is? Don't forget to put on your sunscreen. And you think you're ready to go, and there's just this list of things. And as a kid, you're like, I just want to get there. I just want to do it. I want to get on those rides and go for it. And I can just see the people getting back to the land after 70 years, and they can't keep the first things first. They're just so excited to get back and focus on their own self-indulgence. You know, this is... Um, yeah, I think that's how God's people felt. Here's here's point number one. The first indicator of our priorities is time. How do we spend our time? How do you spend your time? God's people finally had the freedom in their schedule And they decided to fill it with their own stuff, their own self-indulgence. How do you spend your time? I want to show a little time chart today, and this is more for fun than anything, but there's some interesting points on here. The average time spent in a lifetime, okay? Right at the top, one year and eight months of doing housework. Anybody feel like they've already done a year and eight months of housework? Yeah, I know the feeling. One year and 11 months socializing. I don't know what that means, chit-chatting, hanging out, watching sports with the guys. Two years and two months of shopping. <laughs> that's, that's wrong for me too, I would guarantee it, yeah. Uh, three years, seven months eating and drinking. That's probably true for me though, that's definitely true for me, I'd love to eat. Six years, eight months using social media. How scary is that? Six years and eight months, this was recorded in 2019, just last year by Broad and Search. Eight years and four months watching TV. Let that sink in. Eight years and four months of the average lifetime is spent watching TV. I'm a stats guy. I like this stuff. I don't know if you've noticed that yet. Then the last one, 26 years, five months sleeping for the average human lifetime in North America. Isn't that crazy? 26 years and five months sleeping. How do you spend your time? is one of the indicators of where your priorities are at. Maybe you're distracted. Maybe you're a procrastinator. If you're a procrastinator, raise your hand. Don't worry, you can do it tomorrow. There's always time later if you want to raise it this week. That's fine. Maybe you're one of those people who constantly needs to be busy and you find your schedule is full and you're going, 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 but then at the end of the week you think, what did I accomplish? God's people's excuse was that they were waiting for the perfect moment. And can I say this? If you're waiting for the perfect moment, it's going to pass you by almost every time. If you're waiting for things to line up, if you're waiting for the money in the bank, if you're waiting for the free time in the schedule, if you're waiting for the permission, then you're likely not going to accomplish what God wants you to do because there aren't really that many perfect moments in life. Have you found that to be true? Don't wait for the perfect moment. I think as God's people, we need to be more aggressive in our scheduling We need to know what our priorities are and we need to chase them down. Here's something I need to kibosh right here. Let's stop talking about how we don't have time for what's important. Let's stop using the excuse that we're too busy. I just don't have the time. I know I need to, but I'm just so busy right now. We hear that all the time. Actually, we all have the exact same 24 hours in the day. And Steve has said this, and I think it's true, not just because Steve said it, but we are ultimately responsible for our own schedules, aren't we? We're the ones who punch it into our calendar. We're the ones who write it in our agenda. Yes, but Pastor Josh, you know, the kids and the responsibilities at work and all those things, and I totally get that, but ultimately we're the ones who are responsible for our schedule. John Maxwell says this, people are often more reactive than proactive. We accept our life instead of leading our life. We react to the things that come along instead of being proactive and choosing where we're going to go and what we're going to do and how we're going to spend our time. Too many of us wait to see what the week brings and then see if there's any time left over for what's really important. I know we've all had weeks like that. By the time you finish work, by the time you finish chores and different responsibilities, then we think, is there going to be any time in the schedule for me to spend with my spouse, with my kids, with my God? Why not instead do we schedule those priorities ahead of time? Carrie Newhoff says, what if instead of prioritizing our schedule, we scheduled our priorities? And I love that. Let me say it again. What if instead of prioritizing our schedule, we scheduled our priorities? I think that's so good. Instead of getting to the end of the week and thinking, is there any time that I can squeeze out for the things that are most important? Why not now, before the work week starts, do we pull out our schedule and write in the time blocks for what is important in our life and stick to them? Rather than hoping there be a spare moment in the day where, hey, maybe I can show some appreciation to my spouse or maybe I can spend some time actually talking face-to-face with my kids or maybe I can actually read the Bible this week. Maybe I'll find some time. Why not instead of finding the time, why don't we take the time? Why don't we prioritize what's really a priority in our life and schedule it? Your time points out your priorities. What do you take time for first? Take time for what matters most. Take the best time in the day for the most important things. We're going through the Bible as a church in three years. Our kids program, many of our life groups, our celebration Sunday, and maybe you don't know this, but through the week, we send out a reading plan for the week based on that three-year schedule through the Bible. It's on our social media. I think it's emailed out. You can grab that reading plan and prioritize God's word according to the schedule that we're going through in three years' time? Why not take time for the things that matter most? What better content could you fill your mind and heart with than reading God's word on a consistent daily basis, personally, by yourself, time in meditation, time in God's word? What you spend time on points out your priorities in life. I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe you could get up 30 minutes earlier and read your Bible. Or maybe you could turn off the radio when you're driving in your vehicle and spend that time in prayer with your eyes open, obviously, because you're driving. Maybe you could take your lunch break. Maybe when you get home, you could put your phone on silent and put it on the counter. Maybe you could turn off the TV and spend time with your family, with your spouse, with your kids. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I think we all have options when it comes to how we spend our time. And then God speaks through Haggai and he asks a slightly comical and condemning kind of rhetorical question. It's in verse 3. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, since they say it's not time to build God's temple. Verse 4. Is it then a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. I like that phrase. I think I heard Peggy repeat it as I was reading it there. Consider your ways. It says it three times through the passage. This is a self-reflecting piece of scripture. We're asked to think about how these things actually apply to our life. Consider your ways. Matthew Henry believes that they were neglecting God's house to prioritize their own house. They were neglecting building the kingdom of God, the temple in Jerusalem, so that they could line their homes with cedar wood and and line their pockets and line their fridges. That's the idea. Paneled houses. Wood paneling isn't necessarily cutting edge of modern style these days. Might be to some folks in here, and that's totally fine, but generally it's, it's not the cutting edge of style these days. But it was luxury back then. 1 Kings 7 tells us that King Solomon's hall of the throne in his palace was paneled from floor to rafters with cedar wood. Wood paneling in the palace of the great King Solomon. And then, Jeremiah chapter 22 gives a caution for those who would build themselves big, lavish homes with cedar paneling. Wood paneling was like the pinnacle of luxury in those days. Uh, King David had the opposite outlook. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. Wood paneling, luxury. This is King David's house. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. The people we're talking about today were prioritizing their own house and neglecting God's house. King David was living in his house and wanted to prioritize God's house. And he laid the foundation and the groundwork for that incredible temple that Solomon built. Get this picture. God's temple is in Jerusalem. It's just a stack of stones being weathered by the elements covered in dust and rain. And then the people are living like kings in their brand new wood-paneled homes. I've been in a lot of run-down church facilities over the years and church facilities that had no need of being run-down. Church facilities that had people in them who had nice homes, who had the skills and the money to take care of that church facility but for whatever reason they did not. Praise God we have a beautiful church facility here. This is incredible and we have men and women who consistently care for this facility and these properties. What kind of testimony would it be to Great Village and to this community if the roof was leaking, if the windows needed repair, if this place was just in a dire situation, if there was old furniture out at the front of the road? Like That wouldn't be a good testimony, would it? Praise God that this place is cared for, but that's that's just an application. The main focus is not the place, it's the people. We are the church. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells you, God is your Father, we are sons and daughters of God. So we are the church, Monday through Friday, at work, on the internet, in the mall, driving the roads. We are the church. We carry around the name of Jesus Christ everywhere we go. What kind of testimony are we portraying to the community? How do we care for the church? The people were neglecting to build the temple while they were living in wood-paneled homes. Here's the irony in all of this, and our world still hasn't gotten this right. The people thought that if they self-promoted, if they focused on themselves, if they prioritized themselves and their bank account and their house and whatnot, that all these things would be added unto them. And that's just not the case. At the end of the day, they found out that they had less and less and they were striving for more and more. And we'll find out more as we read on. Haggai chapter 1 and verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. I love that picture. Put wages in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. This all goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and Leviticus chapter 26, when the people under Moses' leadership were entering the promised land for the first time. And God sets out this covenant. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1, just to give you some background. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. And then the opposite was true as we go down further in the chapter. Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. But, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed you shall be in the field. This is God's covenant promise with his covenant people, Israel. Obedience led to blessing, and disobedience led to curse. And maybe as you're hearing that, little red flags are going up in your mind and that doesn't sound fair. How does God act like that? Maybe this sounds like a health and wealth sort of prosperity gospel. If I do this for God, then he'll do this for me. First of all, the interpretation is specifically for God's people, the Israelites, in the Old Testament in this time frame. But secondly, it just logically makes sense that if you live for God, it's the best way to live. If you obey God and make his attributes and characteristics as we see through the Bible, his fruit of the spirit, part of your life, I truly believe it's the best way to live. If I could say this a little bit and just speak totally logically, kind of remove the spirituality out of it, if Jesus isn't part of the picture, praise God that he is, and this morning is all about Jesus Christ, but if we just think, Logically, just with our brains and not our hearts. If you apply the truths of Scripture as to how you're supposed to live your life with honesty, integrity, humility, it's the best way to live. There's no other way. And it brings blessing. Whereas if you don't live by the truths of Scripture and you live with cheating, lying, stealing, self-indulgence, it's going to lead to cursing, isn't it? Be sure your sin will always find you out. If you steal, if you cheat, if you lie, it's just going to get you tangled up in a web, like Shakespeare says. You won't be able to get yourself out. Living for God, obeying God, brings blessing. Not living for God and disobeying God brings curse. That's just the natural effects and consequences of our choices. Now God's people have re-entered the land, but they're trying to line their own pockets. And that's the second indicator of our priorities. How do we spend our money? What does your budget say about your priorities? How do we spend our money? The Bible says a ton about money. Jesus talked more about money than a ton of other subjects. The Bible says so much about money, and it's a huge part of our lives, and it often takes over as a priority for a lot of people. In marriages, one of the number one conflicts is money. People go for their job over their family. Money is a huge priority to so many people. There are so many songs in pop culture about money, money, more money, and it's just an endless cycle. When is enough enough? just a little bit more, right? Just that little bit more. If I just get that next raise, then we're good. If I just have enough to pay that next bill or to pay off that student loan or to pay off the mortgage or just always a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. It's this scarcity, poverty mentality that we just don't ever have enough. Enough is just on the other side of the fence. If I could just get there. So many people are trapped in that. Now, we're halfway through the message. All right? We're going to do kind of an intermission. Okay? Because statistically, you have a 20 minute attention span. We're at about the 20 minute mark. We need to change it up. Okay? So, put your hands out and clench your fists. All right? Need everybody to do it. There's not too many people here, so I can see. I can see. <laughs> clench your fists. A lot of people live with clenched fists. I just want to keep you you keep your fists clenched and just take a look at it. Clenched fists. One of the benefits of having clenched fists is you you don't tend to drop anything, right? You don't lose your car keys. You don't drop the change in the drive-thru and then have to do that awkward door open and never works so you say forget it and pay with your MasterCard and drive off. Clenched fists, you never drop anything. But... Try and catch a ball with clenched fists, right? Try and enjoy a good cup of coffee with clenched fists. Doesn't work so well, does it? You know how they trap monkeys? They uh, they get a jar or they get a clay pot with a hole just big enough. You keeping your fist clenched? See a few people released, and that monkey slides his hand in the hole because inside the jar, the box, the clay pot. There's a banana. And once the monkey fits his hand into the hole and clenches the banana, he can't get it back out. But the desire for the banana is greater than his desire for self preservation. So he will hold on to that banana, stuck in that jar, trapped until the hunter or trapper or whoever will come and get the monkey. He'll just stay there holding on to it. He's trapped by what he wants. You keeping your fists clenched? I remember a story my dad told. I remember parts of it. I was remembering parts of it this morning, so I couldn't do all my fact-checking. But it struck me when I was a kid. Crazy story. Uh, There were these two men. I think they were in a canoe or a little aluminum boat. Two friends. One of them was deathly scared of the water. Couldn't swim. I don't know what he was doing out on the water. I don't know if they were fishing or what. Two of them. And, of course, you know canoes and little boats. They tip. So it tips over, and one of the friends swims to the surface. He looks all around, can't see his buddy. So he dives back down under the water, and to his shock and amazement, his friend is still seated in the canoe, in the same position, on the same seat, holding the canoe for all he's worth, because he can't let go of the only thing that was keeping him safe and out of the water, even though now he's underwater. And I'm pretty sure that's how the story ends. He just holds onto the boat under the water. What are you gripping in life that's keeping you stuck and trapped? Just like that money trap. I mean, monkey trap, right? Now, open your hands, okay? Open them up wide. You got them up wide? Just lay them on your lap. Take a little look at them. Hopefully, there's 10 fingers there still. Living with open hands is biblical, Not to mention it's really hard to lie or cheat when your hands are open. It's just some sort of Jedi mind trick. I don't know. I read some whatever. Anyway, there you go. Take it for what it's worth. But when your hands are open, generosity, honesty, humility, living with open hands means you're ready to receive God's blessing. Now you can catch it. In sports, they literally call this position the pocket. Right? Have you heard that? When we were playing basketball, they taught you pass it to their pocket. Show them the pocket. You want to show them where you're going to receive that pass. When you live with open hands, you're ready to receive. Give, and it will be given unto you. Good measure, press down. Right? Living with open hands. That's why when we worship, we open our hands to show that we're humble, to show that we have nothing to hide, to show that we are an open book before God to show that all that we have is yours, God. We release it all. When somebody's, I don't know, the police officer says, freeze, you throw your hands up wide open, right? Like I've got nothing to hide, nothing held back. That's what living with open hands means. Honesty, humility, generosity. And it's the best way to live. Just hold, are you still holding your hands open? All right, I want to read this verse while we have our hands open. I just want you to think about this. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I love how Jesus often flips logic on its head. Like if I look out for number one, then I'll be taken care of. But Jesus says, no, seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added unto you. I love that verse. First things first. Is the kingdom of God first when it comes to your budget? The Bible indicates a pattern, a starting point of 10%. The Old Testament calls it first fruits, the first harvest, the first of your possessions. It's called a tithe in the Bible, dedicated to God and his work. That's why we take an offering on Sundays, this whole idea of first fruits. Are we putting God first? Do we have the right priorities when it comes to our budget the only way that you'll be free from the monkey trap is to live with open hands is he first in your money is he first in your time now let's look at verse 8 Haggai chapter 1 and verse 8 it says go up to the hills bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it that I may be glorified says the Lord you ever built a house or work construction Many of us were down at Open Arms at the quick build and we saw the big crew of men and all the work that was going on. You expend a lot of energy and time and money when it comes into building or renovating or constructing, don't you? Energy. I just want to talk about this briefly, but this is our third indicator. How do you expend your energy? Points out what's important in your life. Points out your priorities. Where do you spend Your energy its just like saying I'm too busy or I'm too broke is saying I'm too tired. I've used that excuse so many times. I'm just too tired. I know I should do that, but I'd much rather sit on the couch. Wouldn't you? Some people have medical issues. They don't have control over their energy levels. I want to acknowledge that. But for many of us, we expend so much energy and then come to the important things in life. I'll read my Bible before bed and we fall asleep on the pages. Or I'll spend time with my family this weekend, then we get to the weekend and, oh man, I just want to sleep in or go to bed earlier. I'll spend time with my spouse and we give them the leftovers, don't we? And our energy is expended. How you expend your energy points out what is important, what's a priority in your life. Verse 12 then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. They made God a priority. They had a deep reverence. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people of the Lord's message with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Did you catch who stirred up the people to do the work? God stirred up their spirit, didn't he? I mean, every Sunday we could hire a monkey on a unicycle to juggle and perform on stage for us right here. And that would get some excitement, that would get some applause, that would get some people out from the community, might make the news, but that excitement and motivation would totally wear off, wouldn't it? We need God to stir our spirit. God is the one who gives us the desire. I love this verse, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Has the Christian life ever seemed like work to you? Like just a list of, I got to make sure I read my Bible today. I got to make sure I pray today. I got to make sure I prioritize my family today. I got to make sure I prioritize the community today. No, I don't want to think about myself. I can't take time for myself. And it just feels like work, doesn't it? God is the one who gives you the will to do it. God is the one who stirs up your spirit within you, and it starts with him. It's God who gives you the drive and the desire for his kingdom. Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, which is September, September weather would be great, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, this is what we talked about last week, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, the days of Solomon, the temple of Solomon, arrayed in all its beauty? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. How would it change our priorities if we knew God was standing right there beside us in all of our life choices? When it came to our time, when it came to our money, when it came to how we expended our energy. How would that affect how we made our priorities? God was right there with us. We need that mindset. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 5. According to the covenant, which is the promise God made with man, that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. In this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory will be greater than the former. He's talking about Solomon's temple. Like how can what they build be greater than Solomon's temple? He's talking about the future. He's talking about the messianic kingdom. When Jesus rules and reigns here on earth, where none of righteousness is not held back, the forces of evil are at bay, the nations of the world are conquered by the kingdom of God, and all is incredible and glorious. How many believe that the best is yet to come? That's not just something that we say that's biblical. The latter days will be greater than the former days. You know, in this whole conversation of priorities, oftentimes we look back, don't we? You know, when it comes to time and how I spend my time, oh, back before I had kids, you know, or back before I was married, back before I had a full-time job, back before, you know, I used to be able to do that because I had all this time, but now. Or you talk about money. Well, before the student loans, before the car payment, before the mortgage, before the bills, before... Way back then, oh, we only had these few expenses and we were living on this much money. Wasn't that great? Or when it comes to energy, oh, man, when I was young, if I was a young man like you and had your energy, then I could totally prioritize all those things and accomplish all that stuff. We often look back, don't we? And it's one of those monkey traps. We try and hold on to what used to be and continue to point back and use it as an excuse If if we were just back there in the glory days, do you remember when things were like this? We hold on to that, and it keeps us from moving forward. But biblically, the best is yet to come. We're going to see Jesus rule and reign in all of his glory, and we are going to fully experience his presence like never before. And Haggai continues on this theme. God says, work, for I am with you. I'm sure you face disappointment in your life, There are areas of life, maybe more than not, where things didn't turn out the way you thought they would. The best is still yet to come. The best is truly still yet to come. Haggai is talking about God's kingdom and God's future temple. And we can read other passages that talk about the same theme, like Isaiah 60 in verse 19. It says, The sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give your light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Isaiah 61 and verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, for as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown to be sprouted up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. You know, there is coming a day when God's kingdom will be fully established. Jesus will be fully known. There will be no more tears. There will be no more struggle. There will be no more snowstorms. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more gender dysphoria. There will be no more shame and guilt because we didn't spend our time or our money or our energy the way we thought we should because God's kingdom will be fully known. And Jesus Christ will be right there with us. And he will be the light of heaven. And it will be incredible. The best is yet to come. then Haggai gives this really strange picture that took me a long time to wrap my head around. I didn't even know why it was in the book. It's really strange. If you've read through it this week, maybe you're thinking the same thing. Haggai chapter 2 and verse 10. I wanted to act this out on stage, but I thought it'd be too messy. Verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, November, now we're getting a little colder, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Verse 11, thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. That just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you can't rub the Bible on your head and call yourself more righteous, right? That's not how it works. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who's unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these things, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. You know, they didn't really have a good understanding of germs and bacteria, but God's law pointed out if they touch something decayed and defiled and dead, then that bacteria, if they rubbed it on bread or if they you know, hugged their kids or if they prepared supper, they would get sick. That bacteria would spread. Verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with the people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. Let me summarize it with this Do you ever do the right thing with the wrong motives? Like you're going through the motions, you're doing everything right, but in your heart and in your mind, you're thinking, oh, I wish I didn't have to do this. You're just checking a list. Mindless, heartless, just doing what needs to be done. That's religion, isn't it? That's man's attempt to get to God. Here's the point as I see it. And I tend to see things a little too black and white. So If this is too simplistic, I apologize, but maybe that'll make it easier to remember. I see two options. You can try or you can trust. Based on everything I've said today, you can just try harder or you can trust God and see these things added to you. You can try and find some more time. You can try and give some more money. You can try and expend some more energy and just cowboy up and get it done or you can trust God you can put him first seek his kingdom first and express some faith and see if these things truly will be added unto you you can try all you want that's legalism that's following the rules that's heartless or you can trust God with your time you can trust God with your money you can trust God with your energy what's it going to be for you? What does your time say about what's most important in your life? What does your money say about your priorities? And what does how you expend your energy or don't expend your energy show what's important in your life? May we be a people who so trust God and embrace the reality that the future is going to be so bright because of the light of Jesus Christ that we can live today with the priority of allowing Jesus to be Lord of our lives because he's already the king of heaven. And that's how Haggai ends with verses 20 to 23. And this is what I want to end with. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake off, shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I realize that's totally confusing. and I had to do a lot of backup reading from really smart men who study the Bible to understand that this is prophetic, future-focused conversation. And Zerubbabel isn't actually the physical Zerubbabel that we're talking about here, but he's a picture, a symbol for Jesus Christ. Did you know that Zerubbabel is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus? In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12, Jesus' family tree is recorded all the way from Adam and Abraham and King David. We see Zerubbabel's name, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, that's the time frame we're talking about, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is in Jesus Christ's family tree. Zerubbabel is a picture of Jesus. Jesus, the messianic king-priest who would set up his ultimate kingdom. The snowplow just went by. We should be very thankful for that. The top priority of our hearts needs to be Jesus. And the Apostle Paul spells this out. Last verse I'm going to read. 1 Corinthians 15, and verse 3. Paul tells the church in Corinth, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Can we get any clearer than that? First importance. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the priority for Celebration Sunday. It's all about Jesus and what Jesus has done for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin. He was buried in a tomb. He rose again and conquered sin and death and hell and the devil and secured for us new and everlasting, abundant life. That's got to be the top priority in our time, in how we spend our money, and how we expend our energy, right? It's all about Jesus. Why don't we close in prayer? Father God, I just want to thank you so much for this time to open your word. God, we pray for safe travels on the way home. We thank you for the worship we've been able to enjoy today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for getting to sing such truth about who you are, what you've done for us, your greatness, your glory, your love and mercy. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ. And he's the reason why we're gathering here today. He's the reason why we call ourselves the church, why we call ourselves Christians, because Jesus Christ paid it all for me and for all of us, the whole world. God, we thank you that you loved us so. Thank you that you took the punishment of sin so that we don't have to. God, we praise and glorify and honor you today. Help us to honor you in our priorities, in the way that we spend our time, how we spend our money, and how we expend our energy, God. God, I know I'm guilty of all those areas on a consistent basis. God, I pray that you would help us, help me to keep a focus on priorities. God, help us not to give our leftovers to you, to our family, to the people we love, to the things in life that are most important. God, help us to give our first efforts, the first of our time, the first of our money, to the places of importance. God, we thank you for who you are today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we don't have cafés.